NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Good morning. I'm Miles Parks. Some states were hit much harder than others by COVID-19. The author of a new study says figuring out why is much more complicated than just vaccines. It is really what's referred to as interpersonal trust, whether or not we believe others are also doing the right thing and that we're not somehow being taken advantage of in these health policies. Also, how artificial intelligence will affect politics, maybe as soon as in 2024. And the new HBO show Rain Dogs looks at family as not something you're just born into, but something you choose. It's Sunday, March 26th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Communities across the Deep South are reeling in the aftermath of a deadly tornado that hit Mississippi and Alabama late Friday night. Officials say at least 26 people are dead and dozens are injured. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports a Secretary of Homeland Security and the FEMA administrator will be touring the damage today and meeting with state and local officials. In the small town of Rolling Fork, Mississippi, the powerful tornado flattened neighborhoods, took out most of the business district, and ripped the roof off City Hall. Larry Bradford is a pastor and former mayor of a nearby town who came to help with relief efforts. He says the road ahead is daunting. Rebuilding, it's going to be a long process. The local lumber store that supplied all of the materials to build, they got wiped out. All of the stores where we would normally get stuff at, your Dollar Generals, your Family Dollars, they're gone. Gas stations, gone. President Biden has approved a federal disaster declaration to aid in the recovery. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Rolling Fork, Mississippi. To Pennsylvania now, officials in West Reading say time is running out in the effort to find any more survivors in the rubble of a chocolate factory that exploded Friday night. One person was found alive yesterday, but four remain unaccounted for. And Julian Abraham of member station WLVR says local police have confirmed that three people are dead from the blast. The explosion destroyed one building at the R.L. Palmer Chocolate Factory. Another building on the property was damaged. Emergency crews have been sifting through the rubble in search of those still unaccounted for. Chad Moyer is the fire chief of West Reading. He says rescue efforts are increasingly crucial. Due to the violence of the explosion and the amount of time that has passed, the chance of finding survivors is decreasing rapidly. Moyer says state and local fire investigators are now involved in trying to determine the cause of the blast. For NPR News, I'm Julian Abraham in West Reading, Pennsylvania. To Hong Kong now, where the first protest has taken place since China imposed sweeping restrictions on the rights and freedoms of people living in the territory. Here's the BBC's Michael Bristow. This rally was tiny and orderly compared to the mass political protests against the Chinese government held in Hong Kong a few years ago. Just a few dozen people came out to complain at a land reclamation project, which will be used to build rubbish collection facilities. Even so, the protest was closely monitored by the police. Participants had to display numbered tags and were banned from wearing masks. It's not clear whether the authorities in Hong Kong will allow other protests with more overtly political objectives. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Relief is on the way for Blue Line riders dealing with slowdowns while the MBTA inspects and repairs the tracks throughout the system. The East Boston Ferry resumes service tomorrow. It will shuttle passengers between Lewis Wharf and Eastie and Long Wharf on the downtown waterfront. T Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville says the T is making it easier for people to pay for the ferry while subway trains are being forced to reduce speeds. If you flash your, your Charlie card, uh, you will be able to ride into uh, into or out of uh, the, the downtown Boston into East Boston utilizing this ferry. Normally, ferry passengers need to buy their tickets in person or on the MBTA's M-Ticket app for commuter rail and ferry. The seasonal East Boston ferry is scheduled to run through the fall. Survivors of mass shootings joined a rally against gun violence on Boston Common yesterday. They included former students of Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. Rally speakers included David Hogg, a survivor of the Florida shooting and a current senior at Harvard. He co-founded March for Our Lives. The Boston event was one of several March for Our Lives rallies held across the country. The city of Brockton is dedicating a public bench to Peter Monsini today. One year ago today, the 1988 Brockton High School graduate was killed while working on the demolition of the government center garage in Boston. The dedication ceremony for the bench takes place at D.W. Fields Park at noon. Boston University's men's hockey team is headed to the Frozen Four. It is the Terriers' first time reaching this NCAA milestone in eight years. Yesterday, BU beat Cornell 2-1. On April 6th, BU will play the winner of Minnesota and St. Cloud State. It's 42 degrees in Boston with increasing sunshine today. A breezy Sunday and highs in the mid-50s. Lows overnight in the mid-30s. Increasing clouds tomorrow. Monday's highs again in the mid-50s. Could rain tomorrow night. Tuesday, a slight chance of rain. Clouds, highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at aecf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. So Hawaii and New Hampshire... Two states that don't have much in common, but according to a new study just published in the medical journal The Lancet, they had the lowest standardized death rates from COVID-19 in the U.S. The places hit hardest, Arizona and Washington, D.C., where death rates were roughly four times higher. Researchers looked into why, and they hoped the answers might inform future public health decisions. Thomas Boyke joins us now. He co-authored the study and directs the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hi, Thomas. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So was there any rhyme or reason as to why individual states were hit harder than others? My initial thought goes to vaccination rates, but tell me what you learned. So it is remarkable to begin with just the difference between states. Um, we control for all the obvious relevant biological factors in this comparison. So we look at the differences in the age of a state population, think Florida, or high levels or high rates of pre-existing health conditions. And even when you do that apples to apples comparison, you have that fourfold spread. And that's not tied to any biological factors. It's tied to something else. And what we found are there are several reasons 
um, why states struggled in this pandemic. One, I'm sorry to report, is a very American set of factors, which is a toxic combination of racial disparities and politics. High levels of poverty, low levels of education, and low access to quality health care. And you see that really in particular in states with a large population that identifies as Black Americans in the last census, and states that went very strongly for the former president, the Republican candidate in 2020. Wow. So there is a clear political angle here. Can you break that down a little bit more? How did you see this connection between people who voted in 2020 for former President Trump and how that played out in the COVID results? Well, it's important to acknowledge first that this is about politics, not party. You don't see any affiliation between the, the, the party affiliation of the, a state governor and its COVID death rates. In our top 10, half of the states in that top 10 are Republican-led states, half of them were Democrat states. But uh, you do see this strong association with the degree to which states went for the former president in the 2020 election. And what about trust? I mean, the former president also was criticized a lot in, early in the pandemic for his role in politicizing some of America's public health institutions. So some of the most fascinating results in this study are around trust. Because your expectation might be what really drove differences in this pandemic are the trust we have in government or the trust we have in science. But our study does not show that. In fact, most global studies also don't show that. It is really uh, what's referred to as interpersonal trust, the trust we have in one another, how we feel about each other. That seems to have had a large effect on whether or not you're able to mobilize the solidarity to convince people to voluntarily take the measures to protect themselves and others in their community. It really seems to be tied to whether or not we believe others are also doing the right thing and that we're not somehow being taken advantage of in these health policies. That seems to have been a big driver. Can you talk about what we learned about mitigation measures, masks, vaccines? How well did those things work? So mandates worked in this pandemic. The package of mandates that states used, including en masse, were generally associated with fewer infections. And vaccine mandates and vaccine coverage rates had a very large effect on deaths. However, it is important to acknowledge that there were trade-offs between particular mandates and employment. So most notably, restaurant closures had an effect on employment in our study. And many mandates had an effect on educational performance, particularly around uh, math. And this is important to acknowledge because if we're going to rebuild trust in public health response, we also need to talk about what didn't go quite as well. Okay, so let's look ahead to the future here for a second. What are the key lessons here for the next public health emergency? Well, the good news is that this study really should be reason for hope. The large variation between states um, shows that there are some U.S. states that performed as well as any country in the world. And if we can address the specific factors, community-specific factors, that drove uh, those states that struggled in this pandemic, if we can address those ahead of the next health crisis, they may get a little closer to doing as well. 
Really, these results show that the pandemic is about place, and we need to take those community-specific lessons and lift those poorly performing states so that the U.S. can do as well as some of some states have shown we're capable of in the next crisis. Thomas Boyke is director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. When Russian President Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea nine years ago this month, only one member of the Russian Duma voted against it. Today, that former parliamentarian lives in Ukraine's capital, where he works to undermine Putin's propaganda machine. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley recently met with him. Hello, Eleanor. Ilya Panamaryov welcomes me to his office in Kiev's historic downtown. The trim-bearded 48-year-old was a member of the Russian Duma from the Siberian capital of Novosibirsk for nine years, until voting against Putin's takeover of Crimea in 2014. Shortly after, he traveled abroad. I was on a business trip, and they uh, blocked my return back to Russia, announced that I cannot come back. So the tech developer stayed in the U.S. and made some money before moving to Ukraine in 2016 to invest in the energy sector. That's when he started thinking about a media company to counter Putin's propaganda. In that time, it was, in my mind, called like uh, Russian language Al Jazeera, uh, headquartered in Ukraine, like uh, uh, a tool of influence in all of the Russian-speaking world. He says he couldn't find interested investors. Then the war broke out. He decided to start a channel with his own money. Less than a month after the invasion, February morning was born. It's broadcast on YouTube. It's still the only TV channel which, uh, firstly, uh, is targeted to uh, uh, Russians in Russia, not the Russian diaspora, but ordinary Russians in Russia. The channel also has correspondents in 32 Russian regions who work anonymously. Ponomaryov's ultimate goal is to help foment an uprising in Russia. He jumps in his car to head to the studio. So you, you have an armored vehicle and you travel with, like, yeah. you have a bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah. Even outside of Russia, being a critic of the Kremlin is risky. That's, uh, February morning studio is a busy place. The station also operates a handful of telegram channels, the messaging app most Russians use to get their news about the war. Larisa Rybalchenko is the network's chief editor. I'm from Ukraine, from Donbass region, and my, uh, my city, uh, where I was born, uh, now it's occupied by Russians. She says before meeting Panamaryov, she worked at a Ukrainian news channel. And uh, I understood that uh, his ideas to uh, oust uh, Putin's regime is very cool. This is special, yes, special, special mission for me. The anchors are Ukrainian and Russian. This one tells viewers we're the only Russian-speaking media that brings you the truth from Ukraine. Rybalchenko says puncturing the Kremlin's propaganda is a round-the-clock job. Today, Putin's have a speech, and uh, he told that uh, economics is rising. In, in Russia, and sanctions do not work. So February morning counters with an interview of a Russian economist based in Cyprus. The network just passed 10 million viewers a week. Ponomaryov says Putin has been victorious in everything he's done for two decades, but that's changing. Obviously, the propaganda is saying um, things are fine, you know, but 
people do see the map. They see that the Russian army is not advancing. They see that for like nine months they are fighting for a minuscule uh, town of Bakhmut, you know, which they, they cannot win. Uh, the town is totally destroyed, but, uh, you know, the army is still in the same position. Panamaryov says it's not easy for Russians to acknowledge the truth. For uh, an ordinary guy, psychologically to understand that he's at fault is very hard. But everybody who has a Russian passport are at fault because it's our president, it's our army, it's our taxes, you know, it's we who invaded uh, Ukraine. Editor Rybalchenko says the hate mail from viewers who accuse them of lying has been demoralizing and she's thought at times about giving up. But she takes heart from the larger number of comments now coming from the other side. Many people write uh, us from Moscow, from Peter, from uh, Volgograd, and they write that now we are in Russia, but we believe that you are right and the Ukrainian will win in this war. Panamaryov says peace will only come with Russia's military defeat and the destruction of Putin's imperialist regime. This war will not end in Ukraine, he believes. It will end in Moscow. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kyiv. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about five minutes, WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has the story on a Boston initiative to prevent one of the complications contributing to high U.S. maternal mortality among black women. And don't miss Mondays with the Mayor here on WBUR. Tomorrow morning at 11 on Radio Boston, Tiziana Deering asks Boston Mayor Michelle Wu about the MBTA, the police, rent control, and more. Don't miss it on the radio and the WBUR app. It's 46 degrees in Boston, sunshine, breezy, highs today in the mid-50s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University School of Music with a free concert at Symphony Hall Saturday, April 1st. Reserve at bu.edu slash cfa slash symphonyhall. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Crews are digging through the debris of homes and businesses in Mississippi, searching for victims of Friday night's deadly tornado. At least 26 people were killed, dozens injured, and hundreds displaced. President Biden has declared a federal emergency. Officials in West Reading, Pennsylvania, say time is running out in the effort to find any more survivors in the rubble of a chocolate factory that exploded Friday night. One person was found alive yesterday, but four remain unaccounted for. And in the NCAA Division I basketball tournaments, the men's Final Four is taking shape. Florida Atlantic and UConn advanced with victories this weekend. The UConn women lost to Ohio State, breaking a long streak of Final Four appearances. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. For the past few weeks, the tech world has been buzzing, focused on the new frontier of artificial intelligence. Developments, as you may have heard, are coming fast and furious. OpenAI debuted the latest version of its ChatGPT chatbot, and Google released its own competitor, Bard. But at the same time, some high-profile fake videos, known as deepfakes, have been spreading online. Here to wade through all of this is NPR's Shannon Bond. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Miles. So I reported extensively on voting and misinformation the last few election cycles, and every year experts say deepfakes are the thing we have to worry about. Hasn't really come to pass to be a big deal. Why is this time different? Well, I think, first of all, these tools have just improved a lot. So the technology is better to create kind of more realistic fake content. And crucially, these are now apps that are available like to the public. So it's now kind of in the hands of everyday Internet users to be able to create very plausible, realistic text, videos, audio, pictures. I spoke with Ethan Malik, who's a professor at uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. He's really excited about AI, but he's also kind of you know trying to figure out what are the boundaries and is a bit nervous about this potential. And so he decided he wanted to see how easy it would be to fake himself. He used an app that can clone audio, and so he able, was able to make an imitation of his own voice. And then he used another app where you upload a picture, and it basically turns that picture into a video. And in eight minutes, at a cost of just $11, he was able to make a deepfake video of himself. And so, you know, this is raising alarm bells of how these tools can be misused in the wrong hands. Are we seeing that already play out online right now? We are. One of the really striking examples in the past couple of weeks was a video that was made by the right-wing internet influencer Jack Posobiec. He's probably best known for promoting the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. And he and his team made a fake video purporting to show President Joe Biden announcing a draft to send American soldiers to Ukraine. The illegal Russian offensive has been swift, callous, and brutal. Now, Pasovic was clear when he presented this that this was AI uh, and it was not real. But he also kind of framed this, you know, in a way that plays to people, his audience's expectations. So he said, you know, this was AI, but it was a preview of, of something that hadn't happened yet, but that, you know, could happen. Many people then went on to share that video without any kind of disclaimer that it's not really Biden, it's it's not real. And just this past week, um, you know, many people were waiting to see if former President Donald Trump was, in fact, going to be indicted. Um, one of them was an open source researcher who, you know, while he was waiting around to see if this is going to happen, you know, turned to an image generator where you just, you know, put in a couple lines of text and it'll create a realistic photo or image of what you're asking for. And he used that to imagine Donald Trump getting arrested and was able to create very plausible photos, you know, showing Trump surrounded by police. He posted these online saying that he had had them created. But again, very quickly, they were spread much more widely without any reference to the fact that they were not real. And I think that really shows how 
this could be used to, you know, manipulate or mislead in, in sort of breaking news environments. Well, I'm already playing out a lot of the worst case scenarios in my head. But what are the people you're talking to worried about when it comes to the 2024 election? I mean, there's a real concern that these kind of tools, you know, whether it's video, audio, text, um, this could really drive down the cost of creating propaganda, you know, conducting influence campaigns. I spoke with Gary Marcus, who's a cognitive scientist at NYU and studies AI, and, and here's how he put it. Anybody who wants to do this stuff, either to influence an election or because they want to sell stuff or whatever the reason they want to do it, they can make more of it at very little cost. And that's going to change their dynamic. Anytime you make something that was expensive cheaper, that has a huge effect on the world. And so you can imagine that to conduct an influence operation, you know, you don't have to have the resources of, you know, a, like a state sponsored troll farm. It becomes in reach to many more people. There are concerns about how this is going to affect 2024. I mean, I think certainly we should be prepared to see lots of deep fake videos of figures like President Biden, you know, of Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, whoever else is in the mix. There may be even greater risk for less well-known figures, people on down ballot races, you know, people running for local elections like school board, city council, who may not have as many resources to kind of push back against fake or manipulated content. And it's not just elections that are at risk. There's lots of ways that generated text in particular could be used to manipulate public conversation by spamming public comments at an agency or, you know, writing constituent mail to members of Congress. Have the companies themselves shown any interest in trying to mitigate some of these problems? Many of these apps, at least from the big companies, you know, do have some guardrails and some limits, but people are quite good at getting around them. And you also have, you know, this question about the social media companies and, and how they're treating this. Most of them do have policies on manipulated or synthetic media, but there are questions about how they enforce this. There's no agreement on how generated synthetic content should be labeled or watermarked in some way. And there's certainly no policy level resolutions in sight here. So I think it's going to be left very much up to us, the public, and certainly us as journalists to try to figure this out. NPR Shannon Bond, thank you so much. Thanks, Miles. Black women in the U.S. are nearly three times more likely than white women to die of pregnancy-related causes. Many serious complications start with high blood pressure. Now, one Boston hospital is trying to prevent those problems by helping patients track their blood pressures at home. From member station WBUR in Boston, Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. With both feet flat on the floor, Kenise Nevers settles into a sofa in her living room. She peels open a blood pressure cuff and straps it around her arm. She gets her reading in about a minute. It's perfect. This blood pressure cuff is high-tech. Like a cell phone texting a message, Nevers' cuff sends information straight to her electronic health record, where her nurse, Megan O'Brien, can see the numbers 20 miles away at Boston Medical Center. So the first thing I do every morning is look at all of the high readings that have come in since the night before. High blood pressure is known as the silent killer because it can rise to dangerous levels without symptoms, and it can lead to serious problems during pregnancy. If O'Brien sees a concerning blood pressure reading, she follows up. Close monitoring can help doctors and nurses step in before a patient is in danger. We're intervening so much quicker in these potential problems that, you know, could be happening at home. Stroke, heart attack, seizure. Um, and so it's really about catching those as fast as possible. This effort at Boston Medical Center has another goal, to reduce the stark racial disparities in maternal health. 
Dr. Tina Yarrington is the hospital's director of maternal fetal medicine. She has seen a lot of pregnancies that didn't go well, and the problems often started with high blood pressure or hypertension. It's the root cause for many, many maternal health inequities. People who are marginalized by structural racism, people who are black, African-American, Latina, Hispanic, suffer higher levels of hypertension and higher levels of complications when that hypertension strikes. When blood pressure rises suddenly in pregnancy, it's called preeclampsia. Yarrington says this condition affects about 14% of the hospital's white patients. But in our black and African-American population, it's closer to 18%. Dr. Rose Molina is an OBGYN at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. She studies maternal health disparities, and she's hopeful. I think that's one of the most exciting things about this, is that it does have the potential to reduce inequities because it brings care home. Early results are promising. Kenise Nevers was eight months pregnant and cooking for a big family dinner one evening last October when her blood pressure suddenly spiked. We were actually getting ready to play cards. And I was like, oh, let me just check my blood pressure before I play. And yep, night ended pretty quick. <laughs> Nevers went to the hospital. And the next day, doctors induced labor. Her baby, AJ, was born three weeks early, but strong and healthy. Hey. Hi. Nevers says she's grateful that doctors and nurses watched her so closely during pregnancy and after. I mean, of course, you're always going to worry. It's pregnancy. Things change all the time, but it eased some of my worry. Nevers made it past the high-risk postpartum days without developing a complication. But she has chronic hypertension, so she still keeps her blood pressure cuff handy. For NPR News, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey in Boston. Jam-packed airports, crazy expensive fares. It must mean that spring break travel season is here. We wanted to take a look at what exactly is driving these sky-high airline prices, which the Fed has noted are a big part of what's driving inflation right now. Helping us to break it all down is NPR's transportation correspondent, David Shaper. Hey, David. Hey there, Miles. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So first of all, let's just start with demand. Almost exactly three years ago, no one was flying at, at the start of the pandemic. Is demand fully back? Yeah, yeah, it actually has. It's bounced back uh, much more quickly, at least uh, domestically, than the airline industry was prepared for even. And so they were short-staffed when people came back flying in droves last year. And that's why we saw all those flight delays and cancellations and frustrations among travelers last spring and summer. The airlines do seem better prepared now, and they better be ready because the industry group Airlines for America says they'll be flying up to 2.6 million people a day in March and April. Here's the group's chief economist, John Heimlich. That will be up almost 10% year over year, uh, but notably up 1% from the same period in 2019, which would be, we believe, an all-time high. And that is occurring even though the airlines have 10% fewer flights scheduled for that period than they did in 2019. Whoa, so walk me through that. We have fewer flights, but more people flying? Yeah, well, that's because several airlines, the major network carriers in particular, like American, Delta, United, 
they're flying bigger planes. And those mm. planes are all full, many without a, an empty seat at all. And it's actually more profitable for them that way, flying more people per plane instead of flying a lot of smaller planes into a lot of different destinations. But, you know, travelers should know that that's left some smaller cities served by regional airlines with fewer flights. And there are even a few that have lost all airline service entirely. I mean, honestly, I can say that I was looking this week at booking a trip with some friends later this year, and I was appalled at how expensive yeah. these airline tickets are. Can you put this into context? Just how high are the ticket prices right now? They're very high. The average domestic round trip airline ticket price was $571 in February. That's a 23% increase from last year and up 8% just from January. This is according to the Airlines Reporting Corporation, which tracks airline sales data. And now that price, $571, that's for all tickets sold. So it includes first class and business class. Your economy prices will be a little bit less. Haley Berg, chief economist for the travel search and booking app Hopper, says there are a few reasons why these prices are so high. The price of jet fuel is significantly higher than it was pre-pandemic. That's going to make every flight more expensive. Labor costs are also rising. Inflation is driving increases in the cost of everything, including giving peanuts out on a flight. So there is incredible cost pressure. And that cost pressure comes at a time of enormous demand, as we've said, and, and that's kept prices higher. But Berg does note that high prices are now starting to level off. I mean, the elephant in the room here, David, is that these airlines did get tens of billions of dollars in government relief yeah. money during the pandemic. So how does that play into the fact that these companies are continuing to raise prices? Well, you know, the $50 billion in federal pandemic relief that the airlines got was supposed to be to keep employees on the payroll so they would stay ready for when the travel market recovered. Uh, but they ended up giving a lot of veteran pilots and flight attendants, mechanics and other workers incentives to leave their companies or take an early retirement. So that's what left them short staffed and, and unable to handle uh, the surge in air travel last year and even this this past winter. Uh, that's left a lot of travelers frustrated because they do see that taxpayers gave the airlines quite a bit of money to to help them stay afloat. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, the market is what the market is. People just really want to travel and are seem to be willing to pay the higher prices despite the uh, the frustrations and the pain they're enduring at the airport. That's NPR's David Shaper. Thank you so much for walking us through this, David. My pleasure, Miles. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. You can dunk it, split it, or just nibble away. There are a lot of ways to eat an Oreo cookie. But what if you want the perfect cream to chocolate ratio? Like you really want it. You call in the engineers. Crystal Owens is a PhD candidate at MIT's Mechanical Engineering Department. She assembled a team of researchers to produce a scientific study they've titled on Oreology. She joins us now. Welcome, Crystal. Hi, it's so great to be here. 
Yeah, great to have you. And I have to tell you a little quick story. In middle school, I did a science project about how many chocolate chips are in each cookie. And I was told, quote, that's not real science. And so this is just a really vindicating moment for me personally. Yes, food science is real science. It matters to so many people. Let's get into your study a little bit. Um, you sought to find the perfect ratio here when breaking apart uh, an Oreo cookie. How did you define what the perfect ratio is? Right. So that's actually a bit of a subjective definition of how you want to eat your Oreos. Um, so, so I started with my personal definition, which is kind of based on symmetry. You want to have an equal amount of cream on both sides of the cookie if you split the cookie into the two pieces. Mm. It, it makes obvious sense that half of the cookie should have half of the cream. I feel like that's controversial. Is that the majority take? I haven't talked to people about this, but I'm, I, if I split my Oreo cookie, I kind of want it on one half or the other, but I don't have a science brain. Is, is there a reason for that preference? I'm not sure. You tell you have thought about this. This is honestly the first time I'm investigating <laughs> any of my thoughts about any of this. So I feel like you tell me whether that there is a reason for that preference or not. I think the one strong argument for getting a bear cookie is either if you want to just eat all the cream on its own or if you want to dip a bear cookie in milk. I feel mm. like both of those are fully valid. <laughs> but usually I don't have milk available. So I want to have like a little bit of cream. So I don't just get the crunch. So I get like a little bit of like a mush and a little bit of a crunch when I eat the cookie. See, that makes sense to me because the only time I eat Oreos, I think, is with a glass of milk. And so that's probably why I'm looking for that. But let's get into the testing here. I understand that you did a bunch of different ways to test the best way to break apart an Oreo. And I, I read that one of the ways was even twisting it apart so slowly, it took like almost five minutes to separate the cookie. Is that right? Yeah. So luckily we had a machine that did the testing. So I didn't have to stand there for five minutes, slowly twisting an Oreo. And I don't have to just twist. I can also do helical motions because maybe if you twist while you're also pushing down or pulling up, that could affect um, what the results are. So we did a bunch of different profiles of how exactly you twist, along with just the raw speed. And what we actually found was that all of the results were basically the same. There's no... No! <laughs> there's no secret. <laughs> it's a little bit comforting, though. It means that there's no sort of risk when you eat an Oreo. You can't do it wrong because there's no way to do it right. That's true. I know. But I just feel like we got people on the edge of their seats thinking we were going to reveal some great truth about the best way to eat an Oreo. And it's like every way, every way is perfect, it sounds like. Do you have any other plans going forward in the food science world? We were bandying ideas back and forth in the newsroom and we were wondering maybe licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop was the best guess. But I wasn't sure if you had any other thoughts. <laughs> Oh, I've heard that one too. I would need like a mechanical tongue to do that. Okay, we will we will look out for that and we will have you on again when you get to the answer of, of that question. Crystal Owens, who studies mechanical engineering at MIT, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. 
Boston's spring and sports can be a powerful combination. The Bruins are on pace for a record season heading into the playoffs. Yesterday, they clinched the Atlantic Division. The Bees are six victories away from tying the NHL record for most wins in a season. And Boston University's men's hockey team is headed to the Frozen Four after beating Cornell yesterday. Plus, the Red Sox season opener is Thursday afternoon at Fenway Park against the Orioles, and anticipation is building. This past week, Mike Medeiros was checking out the Red Sox team's store across the street from Fenway Park. Medeiros grew up in Arlington, and though he lives in Colorado now, he calls himself a hopeful hometown fan. That's who I am. Born and raised, and I always look forward every year to a, to a successful season. Even when I was growing up, I was looking forward to a successful season. So I kind of look forward to it this year and every year after that. WBUR supporters include the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, presenting a talk with Dr. Larry Brilliant, who helped end smallpox as a hippie doctor and whose visionary ideas have changed the world. Free to the public. Memorial Church in Cambridge on March 29th at 4. Details at wcfia.harvard.edu. What does Southwest Florida look like six months after it was wrecked by Hurricane Ian? At least 149 people died, and in some cities, nearly every building was either damaged or destroyed. I've talked to tens of thousands of people, and I've talked to two that have had a positive uh, outcome. We check in on the recovery efforts Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. What is it about high school that can make you feel so alone, even when you're surrounded by so many people all the time? Ari Tyson's young adult novel, Saints of the Household, centers on two brothers in Minnesota who are navigating that very specific isolation in their own ways. Ari Tyson, thank you so much for joining Weekend Edition. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. So I wonder if we can start there. Can you just introduce us to these two brothers, Jay and Max, less than a year apart? Both are seniors in high school, but are very different. Yeah, so the two brothers are, you know, written in two points of view, so we get a dual narrative that way. One's written in vignettes, the other one is written in poetry, and the kind of form kind of exhibits who they are. Jay is really, really smart. He's an observer of the world, and uh, he kind of has a, a little bit of a mathematical brain. Um, and so he has, uh, yeah, he tends to focus on things in kind of short, heavier spurts. And then we have Max, who's just this dreamy, artsy boy um, who loves to paint, and he is expressed in poetry. Yeah, and as a family, their mother is a member of the native Costa Rican tribe, the Bribri, and Throughout this book, they're subject to horrible abuses 
by their father, who is white. And I wonder, can you talk a little bit about how those abuses manifest in in both of them throughout the book? Yeah, I think, you know, they tend to be struggling in that sense of their whole identity is kind of upended by this. But at the same time, I think the book is really them trying to figure out who they are beyond the abuse and what happens when the monster gets kind of put away and who do they get to be after that. The writing in this book conveys such empathy for these two boys, and it's really powerful to read. But I'm, I'm curious uh, to ask about a third character in this book, this character, Luca, who is kind of the villain of the book. He is the star of the soccer team. He is clearly edging towards some abusive tendencies in his relationship uh, with the boy's cousin. Did you empathize with Luca as well in this book? You know, I think so. I think I knew people like Luca. In fact, in some ways, I think I was a lot like him in the sense that I was very friendly and I, you know, I played soccer and maybe I was one of those folks with woo, you know, right? I I was just, that was who I was. But you can do a lot of damage with that kind of personality sometimes, right? And people don't always expect it. I think we all do harm. Uh, that's my own human belief, right? I think we all do harm and we all do good. Um, some of us do more than others. And so I think Luca was in that space for me. Um, he had to be a scapegoat for a lot of things for the boys. But also, I, you know, at the end of the day, I do kind of, as the writer, I guess, wish him well. I hope, I hope he figured things out. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, I want to turn to the women in the book. Um, It seems like to me there's a parallel between the boy's mother who is stuck in this physically abusive marriage um, and then the boy's cousin who is dating Luca for much of the book who is also exhibiting some kind of problematic tendencies. Is that a mirror or a parallel that that was apparent to you as you were writing it? Well, their mom came first, and Nicole actually came out in later revisions. And I think for sure their mom and her are in conversation. Their mom doesn't have the tools that Nicole has. um, And so the choices that she makes in a generation before are different. Also, the people that Nicole has surrounded herself with, her community, her dad, her mom, her family, it's complicated, but it's a good one. It's a healthy one. Um, And so it allows her, I think, to be able to start making decisions for herself that maybe, you know, other generations before, at least in my people group and other spaces, you know, might not have been able to have the power to do. I'm curious that Nicole came later because she's such a key support system for Jay. How did you kind of get to the point where you kind of added a character that helped him through this? You know, I um, thought about my own system and who I have around me who has helped me grow and all that. Um, and I thought about intertribal relationships. For me, right, there's only five Bree-Brees in the US, U.S. So we don't have a huge group of folks that I can kind of lean on here in the States. When I go back home, when I go to my reservation, my land, I absolutely do. But here, not so much. So who has that community been? It's been folks from other tribes around here who get it. And, you know, we can laugh through really tough crappy stuff like colonization and all that stuff that we, you know, we have mirrors, parallels in our own people groups, I think, of, of very similar issues. I, I think that we do have those people around us, even when we feel alone, that we could lean on. Uh, and I think Nicole is that person for him. Going go to this idea of leaning on your tribe as a support system, Jay really finds a lot of solace in his tribe's history. Thinking about the stories that have been told for generations, 
Is that the same for you? And in, in, in hard times, have you kind of gone back to some of the legends and stories and, and things like that? Oh, absolutely. You know, I did a retelling for another anthology. Um, the retelling was called Bloodkin. It was a it was a transformational story about a character who turns into a panther. She comes from a legend where a grandfather and a granddaughter both transformed after their land was getting taken. For me, that story ended up being hugely transformational for my own story in the sense that I could figure out justice. I could figure out ferocity. I could think about how that's really built into my people. And we don't always use it, but we use it when we need to. And that really helps me to get grounded in bravery, especially in spaces of abuse and my own junk in my life. Um, that story, I think about that one often, but there's, you know, we have a story for everything, I joke. So, you know, you could look at a butterfly on the side of the river and we're like, huh. yep, we got a story for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's just the way it is when you're indigenous, you've got stories for everything. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it reminds me of a, a line um, in the book, actually, that I had written down of the hard and good all feel at home with me, which I think is something Jay says late in the book as he's taking stock of everything that's happened. I think that complexity is really powerful. And I wonder, what were you hoping for people that age that what, what they would take away from this book, I guess? Yeah, it's kind of twofold. One, books can be very secretive. You can read them and you, not everybody is looking over your shoulder and reading the book with you. But also, uh, same is true for growing up in an abusive household. Not a lot of people know about it unless you share. And it's really hard to get to that space of sharing. I think that books can reach that space. You know, I, I'm meeting teenagers now because the book's coming out and my whole heart is just kind of growing in a new way <laughs> to think, of, you know, talking to teenagers who have gone through similar things. It's really special to be able to have a book that can speak into those spaces when even I can't, right? I can only talk to a teenager so long, um, but a book, a book can be there with them. Ari Tyson, her new novel is Saints of the Household. Thank you so much, Ari, for joining us. Thank you, Miles. Later today on All Things Considered, a correction. Look, we mess up, and we want to try and show our listeners how we deal with our mistakes behind the scenes. NPR made a mistake in its Grammys coverage. And in this case, I will say it's confusing. Song and record are interchangeable to many people. Even more confusing, records weren't a thing anymore, and then they were again. So Scott Detrow and NPR Music's Stephen Thompson set the record straight. Just listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. HBO's new show, Rain Dogs, a raunchy, dark comedy set in London, follows Costello Jones as she navigates motherhood while dangling on the edge of poverty. She's a single mom, an aspiring writer, and a peep show dancer who manages to form a complex and sometimes toxic pseudo-family to help her make it through. Cash Carraway is the creator and executive producer of Rain Dogs, and she joins us now. Hey, welcome to Weekend Edition. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. What an intro. Yeah, <laughs> it's great to have you. So your show opens with Costello and her daughter, Iris, getting evicted from their shabby London apartment and also ignoring calls from Selby, who's this man who was recently released from prison, but who seems to want to help them out. Can you just talk a little bit about who Selby is and what his relationship to Costello and her daughter is? Yeah, yeah well, Selby is... Costello's charismatic 
dysfunctional, slightly violent best friend who is from um, a very privileged background. He's um, from the upper class. Him and Costello come from very, very different worlds, but they're soulmates. You know, they connect in a way that neither of them do with anyone else. They completely love each other. Um, like they would um, if they were in a relationship, in a romantic relationship, but they're not in a romantic relationship. Selby is gay, so um, they they don't have that bond. But they do live in almost like a romantic fantasy, despite that. Yeah, I was going to ask. It almost it feels like a family unit. Do you see it as as a family unit? Oh yeah, they are a true family unit, and uh, it's just it's just slightly dysfunctional because I think neither of them really know how to love properly because of their sort of traumatic pasts. Yeah. So you've said before that this show is not an autobiography, but it is shaped a lot by your personal experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how this show kind of came to be? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's definitely not autobiographical. Daisy May Cooper isn't playing the part of me. And in fact, it came about because I did write a book many, many years ago, a memoir, um, that was published by Penguin Random House back in 2019. It was called Skin to State. And it was sort of like a jaunt through the gutter, I suppose. It was all the struggles and stories that happened whilst I was uh, living in poverty as a single mum. And that book did get bought for television. I wrote the screenplay for it. And then suddenly one morning I, I woke up and said, I really don't want to write about my life anymore. It was too exposing. I felt like I'd said everything I wanted to say as myself with the book. Um, but then I just, I was speaking to HBO about it. Um, and thankfully, I came back with, with Rain Dogs and they, they liked it. So, you know, it was, it was quite a risk doing that because, you know, I, I had just come out of poverty, you know, in, in writing the book and in, and in getting the book um, commissioned as an adaptation. So to sort of turn around and say... I don't want to do it. You know, potentially I could have, you know, lost lost an awful lot. So that does kind of parallel with something, a theme that comes up in the show, which is Costello's continued dream of becoming a writer as well. And at one point, she stumbles on this opportunity to get an essay published in a newspaper. Let's listen into that moment. Today, Mummy, your name's going to be in the newspaper and not for a crime. Yeah, you're right. All my friends' mums are going to read about it. And soon we won't be poor. You're a real writer now. Yeah, I suppose I am. I am a real writer. That doesn't exactly end well, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what pushes Costello to keep kind of chasing this artistic dream, even as all these aspects of her life are seemingly kind of crumbling. Well, I think because she thinks that she's good at it, as simple as that, she wants a job where she can provide for her daughter. But she finds it really, really hard because of the way that she is perceived, like the people that she meets who could give her these opportunities, view her in, in a way where they look down on her. They sort of find her experiences very exotic and, and uh, fetishize them in, in a way and sort of want to make her a victim. She sort of views herself as a sort of raconteur, like a sort of Charles Bukowski, Jeffrey Bernard type figure, sort of like dancing through the gutter. And everyone else views her, you know, someone very tragic. And that's why I wanted to make the script funny. You know, we see this awful poverty and yet she kind of keeps on going and sort of laughing through it until she can't anymore. Well, and I do wonder about that poverty that you've mentioned and 
I'm wondering about how you feel like TV has portrayed poverty broadly. Is there something missing in how other shows have portrayed poverty that you were kind of trying to aim to shine a light on in making this show? When I started out writing it, I was I was really sort of clear with myself that I didn't actually want to write a show about poverty. I wanted to set it in the world of poverty, in the landscape of poverty, in the same way that sort of succession, you know, it's not about wealth per se. It's about this dysfunctional family. And that's what I wanted with this. You know, we said we have the world of poverty and we see the world of miss, missed opportunities that people in poverty you know, have to deal with. But actually, it is about the strength of character and about sort of endurance. And in terms of like other shows showing poverty, I think, you know, I, I don't know necessarily what it's like over in America, but in England, when we see poverty on TV, it really is quite pornographic and condescending. And I think it's because it's portrayed usually through the eyes of middle class and upper class television executives who they sort of want the audience to feel really sad about it. So when I set about making this, I really didn't want the audience to feel pity. I wanted them to put themselves in the shoes of these characters and have as much fun as, as them. And that's why I set up the dynamic between Costello and Selby, where it's them against the world. I totally see the comparison to Succession now that you mention it. Just that like, yeah, and also family exists. No matter what your social class is, what your exact mm. definition of family is, some of those dynamics are a little bit um, universal, right? One of the th questions I had watching this show was the family unit that, that you've written here is a family that kind of comes together. It's not a family that was that these people were really necessarily born into. No. Is it a net positive or a net negative for all three characters? Can you just kind of break that down of like how how this family unit works for the three of them? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's sad in its origins because they all come from families who either didn't want them or they couldn't really bear to be around anymore because it was too sort of abusive or traumatic. But the, I think it's really positive in the fact that they found each other and that they desperately, desperately want to have this, you know, traditional family unit. It's just that the only problem is, is that they just don't know how to, to do it right. And that's what the whole series is sort of um, portraying is them constantly trying to do the right thing, but failing miserably because they just don't know how to do it. Yeah. Cash Caraway, the creator of Rain Dogs on HBO. It's out now. Thank you so much for joining Weekend Edition. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe will be back next week. I'm Miles Parks. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Join us at City Space tomorrow for a conversation with March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg. For tickets, go to wbur.org events.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzo balls, and J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you believe, as I do, that journalism is the lifeblood of democracy, then please start a monthly contribution to WBUR. We depend increasingly on you to contribute the funds to keep our journalism strong. So please start your monthly gift now at WBUR.org or by calling 1-800-909-9287. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. Good morning. I'm Miles Parks. Fox News is in legal trouble, but the network is still making money hand over fist. Also, Senegal is a model for stability in West Africa, but do charges against opposition leaders there signal a backslide? And lastly, it's a- indie rock supergroup Boy Genius on music and best friendship. I just had a realization that we're doing the historically close friends thing. Yes, you know, we're like, Eleanor Roosevelt. Like people, people don't say lesbian, they just say being historically close friends. Um. It's Sunday, March 26th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. At least 25 people are dead in Mississippi and one in Alabama after a tornado ripped through the region Friday night. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports that state and federal emergency responders are assessing the damage caring for the victims. In Mississippi, the tornado lasted for more than an hour, which one meteorologist described as very rare, and tore through several towns in the western part of the state. It leveled buildings and left thousands without power. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves declared a state of emergency, and crews with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, were also on scene. President Biden said images from Mississippi were, quote, heartbreaking, and vowed the federal government's full support in the recovery effort. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. President Biden has issued an emergency declaration for Mississippi, making federal funding available to the areas hit hard by Friday night's tornado. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell will be touring the damage today and meeting with state and local officials. Meanwhile, the National Weather Service has issued a tornado watch for several counties in Georgia this morning. Local media are reporting significant damage in West Georgia from a possible tornado. In West Reading, Pennsylvania, searchers are looking for the four people who remain unaccounted for following the explosion at a chocolate factory Friday night. Officials say three people were killed, but that one person was found alive yesterday. 
In California, Highway 101 between Sonoma and Marin counties is expected to reopen later this morning. It was closed last night to allow crews to reroute a gas pipeline that's been exposed by mudslides brought on by all that wet weather in the region. Richard Yamaguchi is with Pacific Gas and Electric. We have seen some erosion in other locations due to the significant amount of rainfall we've had. Uh, but this is uh, probably the most significant event we've had during these, these winter storms. Yamaguchi says the work is being done out of caution. There is no leak and no danger to the public. Referendum being held in uh, Berlin to decide whether the German capital should become climate neutral 15 years ahead of Germany's national targets. The BBC's Damien McGuinness is in Berlin. Brightly colored posters all over the German capital call for Berliners to vote in favor of making their city climate neutral by 2030. Most of Berlin's political leaders, though, have slammed the campaign, saying reaching zero emissions so quickly is just not possible and that it would mean drastic cuts in public services because of the billions of euros needed to make transport and buildings emissions free. The campaign supporters argue that because of the climate emergency, sticking to the current national target of 2045 is just too little too late. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA is granting more generous pension benefits as the agency struggles to hire and retain workers. The Boston Herald reports that the new agreement approved last week allows employees to work just 10 years before they can retire at age 55. Previously, they had to work 25 years to get that option. The agreement also boosts the retirement benefit maximum from 75% to 80%. Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal is calling on the Biden administration to keep up the economic pressure on Russia over its war with Ukraine. At a House Ways and Means Committee hearing Friday, the Springfield Democrat told the U.S. Trade Representative that the U.S. and its allies need to continue cooperating to isolate Russian President Vladimir Putin while strengthening global supply chain resiliency. Even in the face of these atrocities, we've seen unparalleled unity amongst our allies. Now is the time to capitalize on our connections and strengthen our economic ties, especially in Europe and Africa. Neil is the top Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee. Last year, while Neil chaired the panel, it helped write legislation to punish Russia economically for invading Ukraine. In Henniker, New Hampshire, a 15-year-old boy died last night after a skiing crash on Pat's Peak. WMUR reports the boy was with his family at the mountain. An investigation is underway. Shuttle buses are replacing Red Line MBTA trains today between Harvard and JFK UMass. The shuttles do not stop at Park Street or Downtown Crossing and instead stop at Haymarket and State. The use of the shuttles accommodates crews working on a new signal system. It is 47 degrees in Boston, a sunny and breezy Sunday with highs in the mid-50s. Lows in the mid-30s overnight, getting cloudier tomorrow, highs in the mid-50s, a chance of some rain tomorrow night, and then Tuesday, a slight chance of rain and temperatures in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, filling in for Aisha Roscoe. Communities across the Deep South are reeling after deadly tornadoes tore through Mississippi and Alabama late Friday night and into Saturday morning. Officials say at least 26 people are dead and dozens more are injured. Hundreds have also been left homeless, and President Biden has issued an emergency declaration for Mississippi, making federal assistance available to help communities there. NPR's Debbie Elliott joins us now from Mississippi. Hi, Debbie. Good morning, Miles. Good morning. So you got there yesterday afternoon, and you spent time in one particularly hard-hit place, Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Can you tell us about what you saw there? Well, it was just widespread devastation. Um, you know, entire neighborhoods were flattened. The business district was pretty much wiped out. City Hall had its roof ripped off. Uh, the library, the little local library, was just laying in a heap of rubble. They even lost their water tower. The, the tornado toppled it over. There were a lot of mobile homes in this community. They were crushed to pieces. Um, and then there were places where entire wooden homes had just been blown off, and all you could see was left were the floorboards. Just to give our listeners a lay of the land here, this uh, Rolling Fork is a predominantly black town. There's about 2,000 people who live here. It's in that um, flat Mississippi Delta region situated between the Yazoo and the Mississippi rivers. This community has always been vulnerable to spring floods, but this is something that I don't think Rolling Fork has ever seen. It's just surreal. There's things hanging from trees. There are cars on houses. Um, There was one corner where what was left of a few washing machines were sitting in this neat row on a slab, what used to be a laundromat. Wow. And so you also talked to some people there. What did they tell you? You know, one of the people I met was Major Larry. He got my attention because he was standing next to this shiny red cab of a tractor trailer rig, and the giant truck was tumped over on its side by the tornado. He was trying to salvage a few things, and he had this harrowing tale that he told me of surviving the tornado as the tornado ripped his house apart. Yeah, I was in there. I was in there. I, well, I, I was in a tornado when I was like 10, and I remember the train sound. When I heard the train, I did the gate alert, get up, and I jumped up out of the bed, took off running, and jumped in a corner. And as I was standing in the corner, debris was falling all around me, the roof, you know, all that. That was coming down in the house. You can hear this has been a traumatic experience. And, you know, a small town, everybody knows everybody. So they know families that have lost loved ones, and there's a shared sense of loss here. Right. So how are people coping there? Well, people are starting to dig through what's left, you know, cutting down the trees that are on things, um, trying to salvage important things from their destroyed property, like, you know, car keys, medicine, cell phones, things that have gotten blown away. Um, Utility workers are out trying to restore the grid. And authorities spent much of Saturday, and they're, again, today, combing through the rubble to make sure no one is trapped. Um, And you can tell that's taken a toll. There was this moment where I spotted a sheriff's deputy in his car at the county courthouse and I approached him. He was eating his sandwich and I had my big microphone and he just had the weariest look on his face like he just couldn't bear to talk about what he'd been doing. I know that, you know, being from Florida, dealing with a lot of hurricanes, sometimes uh, these natural disasters, you can see some community response, kind of people coming together. Have we seen any of that? 
Oh, absolutely. Every box, people set up with pallets of water, tables full of clothes, big grills to share food. Um, in the parking lot of a school, I met Larry Bradford. He is a pastor and a former mayor of a nearby town, also hit by a tornado a few months ago. He was working with volunteers from a Jackson church who were cooking hot meals. And he says the road ahead for Rolling Fork is really daunting. Rebuilding is going to be a, it's going to be a long process. The local lumber store that supplied all of the materials to build, they got wiped out. Yeah. The, all, the, all of the stores uh, where we would normally get stuff at, your Dollar Generals, your Family Dollars, they're gone. They're gone. So everything, gas stations, gone. Now, adding to the challenge, Rolling Fork is in a very rural agriculture-dependent region. There's not a lot of industry or high-paying jobs. So local resources will be strained in this recovery. Okay, so look ahead for us. What's what's next for this community in the next days and weeks? Well, the Secretary of Homeland Security and the FEMA Administrator are here today to sort of talk with local officials about what federal resources can come to bear. For Major Larry, the truck driver I met, he told me he's just taking it a day at a time. It got to praise God I'm still here. And it's going to be a long road, but I think we're going to rebuild and what it, do what they got to do. But it's going to be a, it's going to take a minute. Based on what I've seen here, it could be years because so much of the town's infrastructure is just wiped out. NPR's Debbie Elliott in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump held a rally last night in Waco, Texas, kicking off his presidential campaign. He framed it as a last stand for him and his supporters. And 2024 is the final battle. That's going to be the big one. And while he has not yet declared his run officially, President Biden seems to be doing the same thing with several trips on his and his cabinet's itinerary. We're joined but now by NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Miles. Good to speak with you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. So let's start with that Trump rally in Texas last night. It was Trump's first major campaign event for 2024, and it mm -hmm. comes as he's facing this potential indictment. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, this potential indictment has been expected to come down from a grand jury in New York, and Trump himself recently suggested that he could be arrested as a result of it. Um, he's been on a sort of verbal tear on social media attacking the Manhattan DA, suggesting that, uh, quote, potential death and destruction might follow if he were to be charged. And you know, last night in Waco, Texas, he went on to criticize the justice system. He said the U.S. is turning into a banana republic. And I will say, Miles, you know, his speech to me was a reminder of some of the perils Republicans face in renominating him. You know, he spent uh, chunks of his speech focused on his own personal legal predicament rather than people's problems, you know, rather than any real vision for a second term in the White House. OK. And so at the same time, President Biden, who has not yet declared that he's running in 2024, he made his first visit to Canada and he came away with this new deal on migration, which has been a really thorny issue for his administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, migration has actually been a, a real political challenge, I would say, for both Biden and the Canadian Prime mm. Minister, Justin Trudeau. Um, and this new deal will allow Canada to send asylum seekers who cross at unofficial border areas back to the United States. And then vice versa, the United States will be able to do the same with people who are trying to enter from Canada. Uh, my understanding is that this deal is the result of something that the Canadians had been urging. But, you know, to your point, Miles, immigration broadly is a very tricky political issue for President Biden. Um, 
You know, Republicans repeatedly blame Biden for the number of migrants who've been crossing into the country illegally, particularly from the southern border. And migration, I, I think, is an issue that no doubt the, the GOP will continue to try to hammer Biden over. I see that Biden's also traveling within the country, right? I mean, he's doing this investing in America tour, which I feel like yep. sounds like something that he would do if he was trying to sell a piece of legislation to Congress. But there is no legislation that he's selling here. Yeah, there's no new bill trying to get through Congress. Uh, his administration is basically barnstorming the country for the next three weeks, trying to sell the public on the legislation that it has already passed, mm. uh, specifically legislation around an economic agenda. The first stop is going to be Durham, North Carolina on Tuesday. I'm going to be heading there with uh, President Biden. He'll be visiting a semiconductor manufacturing facility that's uh, planning to build, I'm sorry, a new facility in that area. And that's a result of the big CHIPS Act that Congress passed last year. This all comes ahead of a likely re-elect bid by the president. And, and I will say that is the key context here. Uh, I was speaking with Democratic pollster Celinda Lake recently, and she told me that some 75% of Americans have a negative view of the economy right now. And she says that is worrisome for Democrats because people do not vote on the actual metrics in an economy. They vote based on the direction that they think it is headed. I think the number one challenge for Democrats going into 2024 is we have to get even on the economy. The president and the Democrats are not getting enough credit for what they've done. And so, Miles, the thinking at the White House is that the public just needs to be better informed about what Biden has done. Of course, this assumes that, you know, as campaign rhetoric heats up for 2024, people will be paying attention to policy over politics. And Vice President Kamala Harris is also traveling. She's in Ghana today. And the administration is calling this a, quote, future-oriented trip. What does that mean? Well, you know, Miles, I will say the subtext here, like much of the Biden administration's global strategy, is on countering China. Um, you know, you have to, I think, view this trip in the context of this preoccupation with China. And the Biden administration's push comes to Africa at a moment in time when China has boosted its own presence in the region. And so, you know, throughout this trip, the vice president can offer a contrast to the continent of what the United States has to offer. She'll be traveling to Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia. It'll be a week-long trip. And administration officials told reporters that she'll intend to discuss issues related to democracy, technology, economic growth, food security, and of course, Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, I will point out she is the highest ranking Biden administration official to visit the continent to date. Uh, a number of other officials have recently visited, and Biden himself is expected to make a trip to Africa later this year. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Thank you so much, Asma. Happy to do it. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, the U.S. is the wealthiest country in the world and spends a lot of money on advances in science and medicine. But somehow, none of that translates into increasing the lifespan of the average American. In fact, life expectancy in the country is dropping. But a group of scientists believe that trend can be reversed. Hear what they say can be done to make Americans live longer, live on this station's website at npr.org or on your radio. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, our conversation with a Red Sox team store manager. 
I mean, I'm a lifelong diehard Red Sox fan. Tim Pettit says after a dismal 2022 season, he's staying optimistic as opening day at Fenway looms this week. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com and the Health and Wellness Spring Expo in Waltham this Sunday, featuring massage, acupuncture, and other mini treatments. Learn more at healthandwellnessshow.net. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden has issued an emergency declaration for Mississippi. The move makes federal funding available to the areas hit hard by Friday night's destructive tornado. At least 25 people were killed in Mississippi. One died in Alabama. In West Reading, Pennsylvania, searchers are looking for the four people who remain unaccounted for following the explosion at a chocolate factory. Officials say three people were killed, but that one person was found alive yesterday. And President Biden's choice to lead the Federal Aviation Administration has with withdrawn his nomination. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg confirmed the withdrawal of Philip Washington last night. Washington is the CEO of Denver International Airport. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Senegal is widely touted as a model of democracy in West Africa. But recent crackdowns on journalists and opposition leaders there have some questioning whether the country is headed into a backslide. Usman Diallo is a researcher at Amnesty International in Dakar. He joins us now to tell us about what they're seeing there. Hi, Usman. Hello, Miles. So can you give us a real quick overview of Senegal's system of government? I know it has this reputation of stability, but can you tell us why it has this reputation? Senegal, as you know, is one of the uh, longest democracies in West Africa. There has never been a military uh, takeover in Senegal. There has never been a military rule uh, to the difference of many neighboring countries. Senegal stands out as a democratic beacon in the region. But now, uh, I think over the last two years, authorities have intensified repression. It seems like a big concern is retaliation against opposition leaders to the current president, Macky Sall. Can you tell us about what's happened just in that individual aspect of this? Yes. So it's in the context of the... uh, 2024 presidential elections. Since there are judicial cases against one opposition leader, Usman Sonko, there is an intense militarization of law and order in Senegal, and uh, the neighborhood of Usman Sonko has been barricaded by the police, actually. 
And what about the charges against this opposition leader, Usman Sanko? There are two uh, cases uh, against him. The first is a rape complaint, but also there is another case of defamation. What is really at stake right now is that a conviction of Usman Sanko in one of the uh, two uh, charges against him could render him ineligible to the 2024 presidential elections. So turning to the media now, some journalists have also been arrested recently in Senegal. Can you talk a little bit about the charges that are being brought against them? Just two weeks ago, a journalist was arrested and charged with uh, contempt to court and dissemination of fake news. And uh, this charge of dissemination of fake news has been uh, used a lot to jail journalists and opposition uh, figures or even members of the civil society that talk and comment about the political situation. Even in the case of uh, Pap Ndiaye, who is uh, a journalist of uh, Wars TV, the arrest and charges are linked to the case against Usman Sonko. See, all of this is surprising to me, Usman, because my understanding was that Senegal had a fairly robust media landscape over the last few years. When did this start shifting? Since uh, the uh, March 2021 protest, we have seen more pressure against press actors. These protests, what happened and, and what did they lead to? So this protest in March 2021 were, I think, rather unique in the uh, recent political history of Senegal. And they were triggered, actually, by the arrest of Usman Sonko while he was responding to uh, a summons on the rape case filed against him. The security forces used lethal force against those uh, protesters. And we had uh, accounted uh, around 14 people that died during the protest. Three were children. It marked a milestone in Senegal about the relations between the citizenry and the security forces, and the lack of accountability related to the death of those 14 people is still a sore issue in the public uh, debate in Senegal. There are reports that President Saul, the current president, might try to run for a third term. There is a two-term limit for the office, but I read today that he does not feel like it applies to him. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Senegalese were uh, surprised following a media interview made by President Macky Sall to a French newspaper, L'Express, in which he said that he was eligible to a third term, but uh, he hasn't made his uh, decision. What would be the response among the population there if President Macky Sall does run for this third term? I think this situation is contributing to the instability of Senegal because uh, regarding the eligibility of the uh, President Macky Sall, the uh, question will be uh, decided by the uh, Constitutional Council. It is going to be challenged and there is going to be a violent protest, irrespective of the decision. Can you talk broadly what, what all of this means for all of West Africa, considering how important Senegal has been as this sort of model of democracy. What does this backsliding mean for the region? We have seen the coup d'etat in Mali and also uh, in Burkina Faso. And also we have seen third-term bids by uh, President uh, Alassane Draman Ouattara in, in Côte d'Ivoire. Many West Africans see the situation in Senegal as epitomizing the travails of the region. Unfortunately, I think if the situation in Senegal takes a turn for the worse, we are likely to see more uh, backsliding in the region and more disaffection, actually, against uh, political elites by the citizenry of Senegal, but also uh, Mali, uh, Côte d'Ivoire, and the rest of the West African countries. 
That's Usman Diallo, a researcher at Amnesty International in Senegal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Fox News is in a weird spot. The network is covering former President Donald Trump's 2024 campaign, but they're doing so while they're also in court fighting a $1.6 billion defamation suit over airing lies about election fraud that go back to 2020. We're joined now by NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik, who is covering that trial. Hi, David. Hey, Miles. So let's talk about what happened in court last week. You were there in Delaware. What played out? So last week were called pretrial arguments in which uh, Fox is saying we have so much evidence. We have the First Amendment on our side. This is not got any substance to it, dismiss the case. And Dominion Voting System says, look, we have developed so much evidence that not only did Fox's guests, not only did Fox's hosts say things about us claiming that we were throwing votes from then President Trump to Joe Biden, baselessly, no proof of that, didn't happen, but we can show that the network did so intentionally and that its producers and stars and executives and even its corporate bosses signed on to win back Trump voters who were ticked off about the coverage from election night. You should do it in our favor. Now, that's not going to happen. But what was really interesting was the degree to which Judge Eric Davis of the Delaware Superior Court called Fox's lawyers out in a couple of different ways. And first, they just said, you know, is essentially he was saying, is there no limit? to holding people accountable under defamation for lies under the way in which we interpret the First Amendment and what's called actual malice, which is a tough bar to surmount uh, in order to prove defamation. And secondly, he kept pulling the lawyers back to reality and saying, look, let's look at the actual statements here. At one point he said, you guys have a Lou Dobbs problem. Lou Dobbs was a, a, a star that they pushed out after another election tech company sued Fox uh, back in early 2021. And he, he kept focusing on the practical and the specifics. And the record is now replete with how many times these lies were put out there. OK, so strong words from the judge. But does that indicate at all which way he's leaning? You know, the judge has warned a number of times, don't read anything into my questions. I'm here to learn, and I'm trying to figure out what sense to make of things and what are the rules of the road. He clearly expects there to be a trial. I will say, you know, he fought off Fox's efforts to inoculate their top corporate executives, and particularly Fox founder Rupert Murdoch, from having to testify in court in, in Wilmington, Delaware. He said, look, I have, I have the authority and the ability to do that, and certainly Rupert Murdoch looks like he's in this as well. Mm. Well, separately, but relatedly, a senior producer for Fox star Tucker Carlson filed a lawsuit last week, and she said Fox's lawyers pressured her in the defamation case we've been talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about this new lawsuit? Sure. Well, she actually filed two suits, uh, one in New York in federal court and one in Delaware. And the one in New York was saying she was discriminated against, that she had an incredibly misogynistic work climate when she worked for Maria Bartiromo and also particularly for Tucker Carlson the last year. But in the one filed in Delaware, she is arguing that Fox's lawyers were preparing her for her testimony in this case. That is, she had to speak under oath and answer questions from Dominion's lawyers, and that they basically pressured her and guided her to give answers that she now is saying weren't true uh, as a way of protecting uh, Fox stars and Fox executives, particularly male ones, uh, who they wanted to protect and making her and, she argued, Maria Bartiromo scapegoat for all the defamation that we're seeing the allegations play out in court on. Okay, so that is a lot of negativity swirling around Fox right now. But what do things look like for the company outside of the courtroom? You know, in some ways, it looks great. Their viewership is quite high. Uh, They're right now uh, promoting the heck out of Ron DeSantis. But 
Former President Trump, who had, you know, essentially criticized the network and condemned them repeatedly, is now coming back on the air tomorrow night. He's scheduled to sit down with Sean Hannity. Uh, They're having advertisers seemingly embrace them at what are called the upfronts, where they project about how things are going to look in the coming TV season. So you could argue a credible case that Fox, absent from, you know, the question of integrity and credibility in journalism, is looking quite good. That's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Thanks so much for talking through this, David. You bet. House Republicans passed a bill on Friday titled the Parents' Bill of Rights. It would guarantee parents increased oversight into what their kids are being taught. The bill, which every Democrat voted against, would mandate that schools make library materials and curriculums public. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more. The Republican Party is the party of parents. Elise stole one of my lines. The Republican Party is the party of parents. It's about giving parents a voice. Those lockstep remarks from GOP House Conference Chair Elise Stefanik and Congresswoman Virginia Fox and Julia Letlow came as House Republicans did a victory lap after passing legislation they say will give parents a stronger role in their children's education. The bill would also require schools to get parental consent before honoring a student's request to change their pronouns or allowing a student to change their sex-based accommodations, like which locker room or bathroom they want to use. Schools that don't comply would be in danger of losing federal funding. The bill was the subject of fiery debate in the House this week. Here's Pennsylvania Democrat Mary Gay Scanlon. This legislation is nothing more than an attempt to nationalize our education system and mandate a one-size-fits-all approach across the country, assuming that the size that fits is a right-wing straitjacket. Democrats say much of the bill already exists in practice and argue the measure could provide a legal basis for book bans. Republican members were quick to push back. Here's Chip Roy of Texas. We're talking about legislation in this body to just ensure that parents know what's in the libraries and what's in the curriculum. It does nothing more. Parental involvement in education notably came to a head in the 2021 Virginia governor's race with Republican Glenn Youngkin. Here's David Wasserman of the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. His crusade for parental rights kind of became a catch-all for voters' frustrations with schools in the pandemic. And now, as we've emerged from COVID, these issues are more of a partisan culture war Wasserman says the bill is a sign Republicans view parental rights as a winning issue in 2024, but cautions the jury's out for now on how voters in swing districts will respond. We haven't really seen this issue take center stage in a presidential campaign lately, so it'll take time to see whether independent voters warm up to Republicans' message or whether this falls flat. At least one likely Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has made this a focal point of his own political messaging, famously declaring Florida is, quote, where woke goes to die. Jeffrey Hennig, a professor of political science and education at Columbia University, says part of the appeal of this issue is that it's adaptable. When Republicans are trying to appeal to moderates... Then they can bang on... COVID kinds of issues, uh, which, you know, generate some sympathy among parents who had to deal with kids at home. And when they're in more conservative districts, they can turn the dial to the end of the culture wars issues, the curriculum issues, the anti-critical race theory, the teaching about sex to young children, the 
issues related to how to uh, treat transgender athletes. That strategy is trickier on the national level. Here's Wasserman again. The Republican primaries have the potential to incentivize taking hard right positions on every topic that, that touches the word woke. That could put Republicans a bit right of the median voter by the time we get to the general election. This bill was not about becoming law. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has already said it won't get a vote in the Senate. But it's part of a broader Republican strategy ahead of 2024 to put social issues front and center. Another bill recently approved out of committee would ban transgender women from participating in school sports. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for spending time with us this weekend here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody, and I'm a Red Sox fan, which did not feel excellent last year. In 2022, the Sox finished in last place in the American League East. Granted, many things much more important than baseball have gone awry recently, and Starting in 2004, the Sox have won four World Series, so, you know, perspective. Still, on opening day at Fenway Park this coming Thursday afternoon, when the Sox take on the Baltimore Orioles, some people might be feeling jaded. Not Tim Pettit. I mean, I'm a lifelong, diehard Red Sox fan. Pettit grew up in Newton, well before the Sox ended the team's 86-year championship drought in 2004. In 1995, Pettit started working at the shop across the street from Fenway Park that was founded in 1947 and is now called the Red Sox Team Store, where he is the pro shop manager. And where, in the final days of spring training, he stands in the aisles among all the Red Sox insignia merchandise in the known universe and explains why hope springs eternal. I think that I always am optimistic going into the season. And um, in my life, I've seen everything from, you know, the Red Sox in the total depths of the curse to finally, you know, getting over that hill and, and doing it. And I think that if you want to continue to be a Red Sox fan, you have to have that guarded optimism. And you know that not every year will be your year, but they've given us enough reasons over the past 20 years to think, you know what, maybe sometimes the magic will come together and they'll win a few, they'll get hot, and uh, they'll surprise us. So I think that most fans with the Red Sox know that um, there is enough time in any given season for things to turn around. So you always have to have your eye on them. Pettit acknowledges he's focusing on Thursday's season opener from a retail angle. Well, the start of the season, to me personally, is always a time of chaos. It's a race against the clock every year for us. So to get the store together and have it ready for, you know, 35,000 people on opening day uh, is always a struggle because we're getting new merchandise in literally the morning of that opening day. As he surveys the scene in a store already overflowing with everything Red Sox, Pettit says he gets why it matters to fans to make particular wardrobe choices. Yeah, well, when you're wearing a player name, you're making a statement, right? You're saying, of all the players I could have worn, I'm wearing this one. And so you're, again, suggesting if 
you know, I relate to this player because maybe I play the same position or I have a similar personality or maybe I just really like, I'm a quiet person and I like to have a really loud, vibrant player as my favorite because maybe I can kind of live vicariously through that experience. Um, and I think that there's also a little bit of a bond when you see someone wearing that same shirt. You know, hey, they're also a fan of this player. and You kind of maybe give them a little wink or a nod. Um, and, you know, I think the players do notice. I think they would probably not admit to it, but I think when they see a lot of uh, fans wearing their jersey, their shirt, I think that must give them a little um, thrill, right? I mean, this is what you do it for. And on the topic of motivation, in advance of opening day, Tim Pettit of the Red Sox team store does want to offer the 2023 Red Sox one bit of advice. We would just encourage them, hey, win. <laughs> That's always good for business. <laughs> Meanwhile, somewhere in the baseball superstition instruction manual, I think it is written that the Sox will have the greatest season ever if we inflict upon you the not greatest Red Sox song. You're welcome. I got that Beantown fever burning in my mind. There goes another home run right down the line. I'll always love my mighty Boston Red Sox. If you would like a vast improvement in your music listening experience, then stay with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, you'll meet Phoebe Bridgers and Lucy Dacus and Jillian Baker of the indie supergroup Boy Genius. And remember, it's Mondays with the Mayor on WBUR tomorrow at 11 o'clock on Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering asks Boston Mayor Michelle Wu about the tea, rent control, police, and more. Don't miss it on the radio and the WBUR app. What is this WBUR app of which we speak? Well, the WBUR app gives you an easy, convenient way to keep up. It's one tap to listen live, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. It's 48 degrees in Boston. Mostly sunny today, breezy. Highs in the mid-50s. We'll win it all again this time. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. And Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Maine coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, and it is time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to have you here, Will. Good to talk to you, Miles. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, I asked... Name two well-known commercial products in five letters whose names are anagrams of each other. One product is something you'd probably see in your bathroom. The second is more likely to be in your refrigerator. What products are these? And the answer is Nivea, N-I-V-E-A, which is skin products, and Avion, as in the bottled water. Mm. Well, that was kind of tricky for our participants. Out of just 244 correct submissions, Ailey Dolgan of Somerville, Massachusetts, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Ailey, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And how long have you been playing the puzzle? Oh, I'd say probably about 15 years since I first moved to the U.S. I'm originally from Canada. Gotcha. And what do you like to do when you're you're not playing this puzzle? I do a fair bit of cycling. I play ice hockey. Um, I used to curl just to sort of feed into the Canadian stereotypes. (laughs) Yeah, ice sports, ice sports. All right, Ailey, uh, are you ready to play? I'm ready. Okay, take it away, Will. All right, Ailey and Miles, today's puzzle is called The Big If. Every answer is a familiar two-word phrase with the initials I-F. For example, if I said seasonal stomach ailment, you would say intestinal flu. All right. So here you go. Number one is a digit that's next to the thumb. Index finger. That's your index finger. Number two, father, mother, sister, and brother, but not aunts, uncles, and cousins. Immediate family. You got it. Your next one is a movie that doesn't originate in Hollywood. Indie film. That's it. Metaphor for the ruthless exercise of authority. Iron fist. Iron fist. You got it. Substitute for breast milk in a baby bottle. Infant formula. Uh Uh-huh. Frozen block on the ocean. Iceberg. Ice is right. It's got to start with F, though. Oh, ice flow. Ice flow is it. Writer who created James Bond. Oh, um... Oh, I'm totally blanking. Uh Uh-huh. And the, uh, the I name starts... has three letters. I've got it if you need help. Oh, Ian, Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming came through with it. Good. In math, what cosine is to sine? Inverse formula? Inverse is right. Inverse function. Inverse function is it. What a JPEG is? Image file. That's it. In basketball, the penalty for this is two free throws plus continued possession of the ball. Something foul. Yes. It's it's not done accidentally. Intentional foul. Intentional foul is right. And finally, what's often cooked with curry. Indian food. You got it. Well done, Ailey. How do you feel about all that? Whew. Oh, that was fun. Thanks so much. Well, for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pen as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Ailey, what member station do you listen to? GBH in Boston. That's Ailey Dolgan of Somerville, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for playing the puzzle. Thanks, both of you. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? 
Yes, it comes from listener Catherine Keniston of Beaverton, Oregon. Name two brands of household products, each in three syllables. All of the syllables in the two brands rhyme with each other. That is, the first syllable in the first brand rhymes with the first syllable in the second brand. The second syllables in the two brands rhyme, and the third syllables rhyme. What brand names are these? So again, name two brands of household products, each in three syllables, in which all of the syllables in the two brands rhyme with each other. All right, well, when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. And remember, just one entry each, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, March 30th at 3 p.m. Eastern. And please don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thanks, Will. Thanks a lot, Miles. Musicians Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus all have big solo careers. But they joined forces a few years back on a joint project. And it's clear from the moment we said hi that they're in sync. Hello. Hi. <laughs> As a band, they call themselves Boy Genius. And in 2018, they released their first music together. Just six songs, including this one called Me and My Dog. We had a great day. Even though we forgot to Most of the indie rock world has been begging for more ever since. And now, this supergroup is back with a full-length record they call The Record. And I was hoping we could actually start with the supergroup moniker. What do you guys think of that title? Do you like it? Uh, do you hate it? I like it better than Side Project. It's just like yeah. a Side Project is alluding to the idea that you like care about it less than your solo work, basically. Exactly. Or, yeah, like, I feel like side projects are, like, when a person from a already successful band wants to, like, do something obscure or a little bit more esoteric and make, like, something less dub jams for a little while. (laughs) Well, that's what I couldn't tell. Like, does Supergroup trivialize it or does it not trivialize? Because this this music is obviously an amazing album. I was going back and forth on it. I think it only trivializes it because contextually there aren't very many cool supergroups. Like, I think there are some great ones, but you need the context of the people's solo work for it to be cool. You know, there aren't a lot of supergroups that are greater than the sum of their parts, I don't think. And I think we're the tightest, so. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the record a little bit. One of the themes that I hear a lot as I've listened to this record is digging into intimacy. And I want to listen to a little bit of the song, Emily, I'm Sorry. I feel like that lyric, I can feel myself becoming someone only you could want, really plays on this kind of two sides of intimacy. It's obviously really nice to be close to somebody, but it can sort of shine a light on the parts of you that maybe you don't love. Phoebe, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's like clearly self-deprecating, but it's also a dig at the other person. Mm. I always thought that that line is 
the essential context for the chorus because it's like the person convinced you of the lie. Yeah. It's like when you're feeling like, oh, actually, oh, you yeah. are the only person and that's why you're like, uh-huh. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because it's like, you're my one chance at being loved, which is what toxic people want you to believe. Mm-hmm. Or I've had that experience where totally. someone's like, this is the best you're going to get. Or like this is uh, no one's gonna love you like I do. Yeah, exactly. Because no yeah. one else sees Please, how despicable you are. <laughs> yeah. Because they try. They're like no one else sees the real you, and if other people saw the real you, they wouldn't yeah. love you. Well, let me transition that to play the top of twenty dollars, and I want to talk about that a little bit. It's a said before but i feel like that top line of like it's a bad idea and i'm all about it can encompass so much of your music julian in terms of just like trying to understand some like self-destructive tendencies and i wonder why are you all about it and then b uh, (laughs) why do you like writing all about it why am i all about it what's more fun than pressing the button that says don't press this button (laughs) what is it about me Uh, that's been my perpetual struggle since I was like five years old of trying to not be that guy. And I guess trying to interrogate what is it within myself that's looking for a more sensational, extreme feeling than what would be like a healthier and more stable practice. And like, how do I arrive at that? I just wrote that part and that riff and then sent it to them. And then Phoebe and Lucy extrapolated it into like a whole entire story and setting. I want to live in that world, the world that you build, which is just like shows how effective it is. I want to turn to you, Lucy, and talk about this awesome short song called Leonard Cohen on the album that opens with this kind of vignette. Can you just tell the story of the opening of of Leonard Cohen? Yeah, so after our first writing trip together in April of 2021, Mm-hmm. We were in, I keep calling it upstate California, northern California, <laughs> and driving back to L.A. And um, Phoebe was like, oh, my God, have y'all not heard The Trapeze Swinger by Iron and Wine? She got on the interstate in the wrong way, and I noticed partway through the song, but she was so serious. She was like, y'all need to shut up and listen to this. And so it was not going to be okay to interrupt the moment. It's like a 10-minute song or maybe more. And then Julian and I were like, that was awesome. Um, you're going to have to turn around, though. So. <laughs> I saw um, it happening. You, like, miss miss the exit, right? It, it's just funny to me that if anybody interrogates that lyric, the only way that it happened is if you're in a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, no no, no missed exit would add an hour. An hour. Mm. The giant iPad was screaming at us to turn around, <laughs> and I wasn't. <laughs> I was talking to our great critic at NPR Music, Marissa LaRusso, and I was just asking her what she thought about the album, what her thoughts were, and she was saying one of the things she loved so much about this record is that how many of your great songs and moments are about friendship and viewing friendship as a love that's like worth writing about. Can you talk about that a little bit, about why that's something worth writing about? I just had a realization that we're doing the historically close friends 
thing. Yes. Like, you know, we are like, like people, people don't say lesbian. They just say, like, just being historically close friends. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, like, friendship is something that I think about a lot. Like, I don't know, my life is defined by my friends. It's the thing that my life is. And I feel like there's maybe some good media about friendships, but not a ton. And it's like romance also has like typical touchstones, whereas like every friendship is so unique. I, I kind of feel like there's even more there to play with. So why aren't people doing it? Like it doesn't feel like a hack subject the way that I, I've been writing a lot of love songs recently. And I feel myself being like, well, this is like overplayed or like this isn't profound in the slightest, but I can pick any one of my friends and write something that is just completely unique to them. I want to go to another song real quick. The song Not Strong Enough, which culminates in this really powerful refrain. I'm getting some like I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier vibe. That's literally what that, I said. It's on uh, yeah. The I was like, playlist. I was like, God, that it just feels so good to be this doing this like looping refrain that becomes a group vocal, and I've never done that. And then Lou was like, I have something that would fit. That is the rock doc of how that happened. I want to ask about one of the other moments I really loved on the album was at the end when you reference the Me and My Dog melody from the first EP, full disclosure, got some chills. How did you decide to do that? I love, I do love when musicians kind of allude back to their previous music. How did that moment come to be? Well, I just started writing a song that I was like, God, I have to stop writing this. It's just exactly Me and My Dog. And then I was like, wait. <laughs> I am making a Boy Genius album. What if it was just, I have a problem with that, like just kind of not being done writing a song. And like once you crack the code of phonetically and rhythmically how to write in a song's world, once I'm done is when I'm the best at it. And mm. that sucks. Mm. So to so to be able to write a sequel song, it was so magical. And then Lucy suggested, because I was like, I'm feeling like this, and I'm feeling like this, and I'm feeling like this. And Lucy was like, what if you just say, I want to be happy? And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then, It's the saddest thing Phoebe's ever said. I think. And you get through the entire record before you realize we're referencing anything we've done or any similar ideas even. Mm -hmm. I was like really excited for people to be like, wait, what? What's is it about to be? It is about to be that. <laughs> Obviously, it sounds like you guys are having a lot of fun writing these songs and playing them. There was a lot of anticipation post the EP about whether there would be a full length. And then here it is. Are you guys planning on doing another one? Or what's the plan for the band going forward? I feel like it's hard to answer that question because we're so excited about having done this. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, so yeah, there's it's no like, plan because yeah. like all of the because we're living in it about this right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah. That's true. But we, we did say like we're going to give this year to each other. You know, like we all have our own things. And so carving out a whole year is a lot. And yeah. like I think that's part of people's interaction with the band is like extreme presence and gratitude, which is what we also have. Like we're all on the same page that this is a unexpected treat from life <laughs> yeah and that yeah. yeah i think that's part of why it's it's 
good to feel present. But it feels good. Boy Genius are Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. Their new album, The Record, is out this week. Thanks so much for talking today. Yeah, thanks no for problem. talking. No thanks, thanks for enduring us. Love you. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 49 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, breezy, and highs reaching the mid-50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. And Into the Woods, Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Tony Award-winning musical is coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. And now a second week of performances has just been added. Into the Woods plays at Emerson Colonial Theatre for two weeks, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheatre.com. The new movie Champions follows a basketball team made up of players with intellectual disabilities. And for the cast, it was a chance to show that they belong in Hollywood, too. You did just go out for it and do what you got to do and believe in it. I'm Scott Detrow. We talked to actor Kevin Iannucci on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. It's WBUR's Weekend All Things Considered, today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.